the Rathbones Inspired Minds podcast series. Hello and welcome to the Rathbones Inspired Minds podcast series. I'm Daniel Norcross. In each episode, acclaimed writers, scientists and entrepreneurs reveal what inspires them. Today, I am delighted to be joined by a man you may well know as one half of the eye-wateringly successful podcast The Rest is History, which has taken the UK by storm and after touring Australia and the States last year, is now aiming for world domination. But Polymath Tom is no mere podcast host. He is a Cambridge graduate, wrote Byron and Vampire novels, was instrumental in the Better Together campaign to save the Union, last year bought a dinosaur, collects old coins, is striving to save the surrounds of Stonehenge from the diggers, talks endlessly, but not today, about cricket, and supports Aston Villa. And more importantly, he is a writer, predominantly an historian of the ancient world, although his most influential book is Dominion, a history tracing the impact of Christianity on the modern world. Welcome to the podcast, Tom Holland. Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, I ask this of all of our guests. We are the Inspired Minds podcast, and I like to understand what inspiration means to my guests. It could be inspiration that you receive or inspiration that you give. Is inspiration a driver, an important part of what you do in your work? Well, most of my professional career, I've spent sat at a computer writing. And I think without inspiration, you couldn't possibly begin to start work. That winking cursor, or right at the start of my career, the blank sheet of paper. Without inspiration, you just wouldn't have the, I guess, the arrogance, perhaps you might say, to sit down and start work. So yes, without inspiration, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. But you say without inspiration, you would be able to do what you do. It's almost impossible to know what you're doing from one minute to the next. I turn on Twitter and you're either collecting a whole bunch of rivers in England or you're walking Hadrian's Wall or you're saving the nation from the vandals at Stonehenge or you're looking after hedgehogs or you're writing an entirely new history or you're doing a book in Spanish. So does inspiration just come easily to you? I think that there are certain consistent wellsprings and I think probably the most consistent wellspring that I have is a sense of the infinite fascination of the past. To be honest, I find the past more interesting than the future, which is a kind of terrible thing to admit. I remember when I was a very young child and I grew up outside Salisbury, which is a famously very historical city with its beautiful 123 meter spire, Stonehenge very near surrounded by all kinds of evidences for the past. But we drove into Salisbury's ugliest multi-storey car park and my mother had left something behind. So she had to leave me in the back of the car and go back down to the shops to get it. And I gazed out at the streaked grey concrete, (laughs) the dank dripping ceiling. And I thought how much more interesting life would be if we were in the Mesozoic if we were surrounded by dinosaurs and all kinds of things. Now, obviously, I wouldn't have lasted a minute in the Mesozoic, but I remember it as one of those moments in childhood that you retain the perfect memory of them, the kind of absolute vividness of the sense. I think I remember that because, in a way, it speaks to a truth about my inspiration, which is that I just feel the past is more glamorous and interesting than the present. You know, a world full of sauropods to a world full of streaky grey concrete, which is obviously very unfair on the present day. Well, no, I don't think it is, actually. I think the thing about the present day is that you live its mundanities and you know what they are. Whereas as a child, I remember going to a castle 
and suddenly your imagination explodes into what might happen in that castle. Yeah. You're dressed up as this person. You've got invaders. You've got stuff happening. There's not an awful lot that's probably happening on Salisbury High Street when you're seven years old. You are right, Dan. You are right. That's, I suppose, part of the fascination of history. But you've mentioned dinosaurs. Now, almost every kid, it seems to me, is wowed by dinosaurs. Not all kids end up being historians. You say that about dinosaurs. When I was um, a child, so that was in the 70s, actually, dinosaurs didn't have nearly the profile that they have now. I remember I was in my um, class at school. There was one other boy who was obsessed by me. And we were great frenemies because... You know, we would talk about them all the time, but at the same time, there was a competition to be more passionate about them than the other. And I remember that there was very little on TV. There was very few films about it relative to now. There was an open university series on paleontology presented by chief curator at the Natural History Museum. And I would watch every single one waiting for the dinosaur episode, which finally arrived. And they had a sequence on this town called Dinosaur, which was in Colorado. I don't know how Open University had paid for the curator to go there, but he popped up there. I remember asking my parents, please, please, can we go to Dinosaur in Colorado? I mean, they were not going to do that. We never went abroad. (laughs) We had holidays in Wales and Cornwall. We were not going to be going to Colorado. And all my life, I thought, ah, one day I'm going to go there. It must be the most brilliant place. Everything will be about dinosaurs. There'll be models of dinosaurs everywhere it'll be brilliant. And then just before my eldest daughter was due to be born, I went on a trip to Colorado, not just to see that, but (laughs) I thought, you know, I can't resist the chance to go there. The friend I was with, I made, you know, we drove kind of like 800 miles in the way that you do in America, 800 miles out of the way just to go and have a look at it. And we got there and honestly, it was the biggest dump in the world. It was basically just a crossroads (laughs) with a slightly battered stegosaur by the crossroads. And I was so relieved I hadn't made my parents go there. They would have been so disappointed. But then, Dan, the weird thing is that I then went to the town that I thought Dinosaur was going to be. And it's a place called Drumheller in Canada, in Alberta. And it has the world's, I think, not just the world's greatest paleontological museum, but the world's greatest museum, full stop. Relative to what it's set up to do, it gives you everything that you could possibly want from the deep time of planet Earth. They have three fossils of tyrannosaurs. They have a dinosaur feather in amber. They have a great slab of rock. It looks like a Rothko painting. And across the middle, there's this kind of streak of orange. And that streak is the iridium layer left by the meteorite that smashed into planet Earth and destroyed the dinosaurs. So an incredible place. But all around it, it has the largest freestanding statue of a dinosaur that you can climb up the middle and go down out of its mouth which is brilliant. And pretty much every garden does have a little model of a dinosaur. And I thought, this is where I should have come. This is where I... <laughs> so the, the, the intensity of that inspiration, I like to think, has endured into adulthood. I don't want to leave dinosaurs just yet because I'm of a very similar age to you. I loved my dinosaurs. I particularly loved the Triceratops. And I loved the Triceratops because it was always depicted, almost certainly falsely, as being in perpetual combat with the Tyrannosaurus rex and that it had developed its carapace in such a way and its horn to be able to repel the Tyrannosaurus rex. And it struck me that the history of dinosaurs, as it was being taught to me, was an adversarial history, that these dinosaurs predated on these dinosaurs. So it created a kind of story that was in line with how you could get into history. Whereas in a way, you know, we we, we are talking about zoology, the study of animals from the past, and yet somehow it's not the same as discovering an old fish is it 
I think you're absolutely right to focus on that image of a tyrannosaur always combating a triceratops. And there was a very, very famous painting that was done of it, this kind of shootout in the 30s by an American artist. And of course, it's no coincidence that it looks like, you know, high noon. It looks like a sheriff and an outlaw confronting each other outside the saloon. Because the way that we understand the past, whether it's the very deep prehistoric past or the historical past, is inevitably influenced by the cultural moment, the cultural context of the person who is looking back to the past. So at the same time as that was being painted in the United States, there was another painting of Triceratops against Tyrannosaurs. And this was done in the Soviet Union. And there, the Triceratops were a kind of collective. They had all formed together to form a bristling shield wall. And there were two or three predatory tyrannosaurs looking like evil capitalists kind of roaming the margins. But the plucky communist triceratops had come together to form a collective and to keep them out. And again, that was obviously as culturally determined as anything. And I think that there's a sense in which the modern dinosaur, which is much more active, it's warm-blooded, it, it leaps, it flies. The, the understanding now that birds are literally dinosaurs. I mean, the dinosaurs didn't actually go extinct. This is clearly bred of paleontological research. I mean, it is objectively, scientifically corresponds to what the scholars investigating it think. But at the same time, it's no coincidence that this sense of a very, very mobile kind of dinosaur emerged at the same time as fast-speed computing was being developed. The idea of, if you think of Jurassic Park, that sense of the velociraptors breaking into the computer room and the code appears flickering over their face. And also, indeed, even the fact that the initial focus of dinosaur research was in Britain in its Victorian heyday, then it passes to the United States, and it's probably now centered in China. It's discoveries in China that have led to the realization of just the degree to which birds are dinosaurs. So again, there's a, there's a kind of weird symmetry there that the focus of dinosaur study seems to correspond to economic and industrial supremacy. Now, you remain inspired by dinosaurs. Didn't you buy one recently? Is that right? Well, I did. It was actually my brother, who I think is coming on your series or may already have been on your series, who spotted it for me. There's an auction house in Salisbury, which focuses on vintage furniture. But there was a job lot of fossils that were being sold. And one of them was a display case from a museum that had come ultimately from New Zealand, but via Budapest as well, and then a private collection. And it was a Psittacosaurus, which was actually a kind of ancestral ceratopsian. So linked to uh, Triceratops, but much earlier than that, 120 million years ago. And... I I just thought I'd never have another chance to buy a dinosaur. So I went and bid for it. And I was so tense beforehand because I was imagining everyone who'd go into this auction would obviously want the dinosaur. I mean, why would you bother buying, I don't know, a Victorian piano stool or something when you could have a dinosaur? But I was actually the only person who bid for it. And I got it for the reserve price. And I was so happy that I kind of leapt up and danced for joy. It got photographed by the auction house camera and uh, they put it on you know, they put it out for public consumption. And so it had a brief moment of fame, my pure joy. And as I'm sitting here talking to you, Polly, as we call her, Psittacosaurus, of course, parrot lizard, is right next to me. Bless her. Now, you mentioned your brother there, James, and I'm 
kind of fascinated at the family Holland as you're growing up, the two of you together. Yeah. And partly because, I mean, what makes it all the more fascinating for me is that I look at the two of you now and I see one man, James, who focuses the entirety of his historical inquiry, it seems to me, in a six-year period from September 1939 to August 1945, who still has unfinished business with the Far East, as he's told me once. And you, let's put dinosaurs to one side for a moment, but your prime or your first areas of study, or the ones perhaps you're most well-known for, are going all the way back to the Peloponnesian War, to the Persian Wars, to ancient Rome. And yet at the same time, you do a weekly podcast, as your brother does, with Dominic Sandbrook in your case, in which you can be discussing coronations of William IV and George IV, one minute, Napoleon, um, Athelstan. It's a very broad-ranging world that you are devoted to, that you dive into, and your brother's a lot more specific. What do you think the reasons for that are? Well, again, I think it goes back to the inspiration from childhood. When I'm talking about inspiration, I always think about childhood because I would say that the focus of my interest as a historian has always been the classical world, as you mentioned, ancient Greece, but particularly, I think, ancient Rome. And my interest in the Romans in particular, but also the Greeks, emerged almost seamlessly from my interest in dinosaurs. So I was obsessed by dinosaurs when I look back and think now because they were glamorous, they were exotic, they were fierce, and they were also safely extinct. So I could enjoy the spectacle of a tyrannosaur shredding a dead triceratops and not feel unduly unsettled, as perhaps I would if I was watching a crocodile disassemble a wildebeest or something. And the books I had about dinosaurs always featured these kind of illustrations. There were always predators shredding herbivores. And I remember being given a book. It was a book about the Roman army, and it showed had an illustration of Julius Caesar's greatest victory at the Siege of Alesia on the front and Gauls fighting Romans. And there was a Roman centurion with a spear stuck in his stomach and he was pulling it out and the blood was staining the chainmail. And I was kind of weirdly, sinisterly gripped by it. In the same series, there was a brilliant illustration of the Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae. And again, it, I, it was the drama. But I think the reason why I felt that it was safe to kind of enjoy this Whereas I was never that interested, for instance, in, in the Second World War, unlike my brother. The Second World War seemed too close, unsettlingly close. Whereas with the Greeks or the Romans, they were sufficiently distant. And my interest in them has been a kind of a warmth, a kind of glow in my brain, in my heart, in my guts. I kind of feel it almost as something physical. And it's been a companion with me throughout my life. But the things that I find interesting in antiquity, I also find interesting about almost every other sweep of history. You have to kind of specialize if you're writing. So I would say that my specialization would be Rome. But equally, that interest in Rome and the, and the classical world more generally has led me into unexpected, well, I mean, unexpected from the point of view of if you'd asked me what I would have been interested in, say, 20 years ago, avenues of inquiry. Because one of the things that you get when you write a book that perhaps you don't get when you're just reading about them or thinking about them is that you have to try and get inside the heads of very alien and different peoples and try and see the world through their eyes. So that's what I was doing when I wrote my first book, which was about the age of Julius Caesar. So I was writing about that siege that I first saw. And then I wrote about the Spartans at Thermopylae in the next book. 
and trying to think how the Romans in C- of Caesar's age or the Spartans who would have fought at Thermopylae to see how they saw the world was very, very unsettling, actually. They were frightening. They were terrifying. The things that they believed were often very repugnant. So it's said of Julius Caesar that he killed a million Gauls and enslaved another million. And it's not like he felt bad about this. He thought it was brilliant. You know, when he did had his triumph, people would carry huge banners saying how many people he'd killed. And everyone would go, fabulous, hooray for Caesar. And the Spartans, you know, you know this, Dan. Mm. They were the inspiration for a lot of Nazi racial policy. They conquered a neighboring city and enslaved them and bred their slaves to make them as doltish and stupid as possible, which is the Nazi plan for, for the lands that they conquered in, in Eastern Europe. So these were very, very unsettling. But again, in classical Greece, there were lots of people who thought the Spartans were brilliant. They kind of provided an inspiration to Plato. And so I was increasingly nagged by the question of, of what changed, what happened? Why are we so different? And I increasingly came to think that it was an ideological gear shift associated with the coming of Christianity. So I then moved on to write a book about what I think is the key moment that really marks where the modern West that we live in really begins. And it was around the 10th and particularly the 11th century, a great convulsive period of change in the history of Western Christendom, wrote about that. And in writing about that, I was thinking about the degree to which in the early Middle Ages, so the centuries that immediately follow the collapse of Roman rule in the Western half of the empire, a lot of the successor kingdoms, barbarian kingdoms as they're often called, you know, they preserve continuities with the Roman world, but there's this slow process of change that marks them. And then I began to think, well, had the same thing happened in the eastern half of the Roman Empire? And I was specifically thinking of looking at Islam. So if you look at, say, at the great buildings built by Theodoric, the Visigothic king of Italy, who ruled Italy in the wake of the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West, the buildings that he builds at Ravenna look Roman. They have mosaics. You know, there are all kinds of architectural features that are recognizably Roman. And if you look at the Dome of the Rock, which is the first recognizably Muslim building still standing, standing on, on the rock in Jerusalem where the temple had originally stood, great dome. It's Islamic, but it's also very Roman. Lots of mosaics. It's the dome. The dome is a Roman architectural form. You know, to go back to the dinosaur analogy, it's kind of like the Archaeopteryx the dinosaur that lay between the traditional kind of dinosaur and birds. I was kind of asking myself, well, did the same process happen in the Eastern half? What did Islam owe to the Romans? What did they owe to the Persians? What did they owe to Jews, Christians, Zoroastrians, whatever? And so that then led me to write a book about the origins of Islam. And then as I was writing that, I was thinking, well, to what extent are we in the modern West still shaped by Christianity? Uh, And so that led me to write Dominion, which you mentioned in the introduction, which was a book that took me right the way from, oh, the Persian Wars, kind of begins in the 5th century BC and goes right the way up to the present day. So I finished it just after Donald Trump had been elected. It mentions the Harvey Weinstein scandal. The final chapter is looking at all kinds of things that are happening in the 21st century. So that was a real new experience for me. You know, I was well, well out of my comfort zone with that. And I think probably without that, I wouldn't have dared to go on to do the rest of history, which, as you say, covers all aspects of history. I want to go back a little bit to Dominion there, because it's it's a wonderful book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. 
It's something about you, though, in this book, as there is on your, your work on the Caesars as well, which is that people are very important to you. The characters of people matter a lot, but also great, big, sweeping ideas. A lot of historians will spend forever, for example, trying to get to the bottom of the mutilation of the Herms. And they may spend their almost a life's work on looking at various different sources to try to get to the bottom of that one particular incident. You are very comfortable with very large scale ideas, which must open you up to an enormous amount of pedantry and criticism from your historical peers who are always you know, trying to pick holes in what you're doing, doesn't it? I mean, I think that comes with the territory, but not really. No, not really. Uh, because I think that I write for a general audience. Uh, academics obviously write for a scholarly audience. Um, there are scholars uh, and historians who focus on the minutiae. There are historians who do the broad brush. I think it's a very diverse ecosystem. And I think that most historians would recognize that there is room for lots of different approaches. And I would say, I mean, if we're talking about inspiration, one thing that definitely I have come to be inspired by, and I think it is one with which 21st century historians have a problem, and I would obviously number myself among their ranks because I'm a 21st century historian, the significance of people's understanding of the supernatural. So you talked about the Herms, the mutilation of the Herms, the statues in ancient Athens that were mutilated during the course of, of the Peloponnesian War. To look at, say, the democracy in Athens, what was it? What was the democracy? I think for us, because our political system also has this word democracy associated with it, the temptation is to judge Athenian democracy by our standards. So for instance, to blame the Athenian democracy for not allowing women or slaves to vote. I mean, people always mention that. But I don't think that what the Athenians meant by democracy is what we mean by democracy. And I think that what prevents us from seeing that is two things. One is the Christian lens we have. Modern democracy emerges out of certain Christian preconceptions, the most significant of which is that every individual being has an inherent value and worth. And it is from that that our concept of people having rights emerges. And our democracy is based on the idea that people have a vote by right. It's this kind of abstract idea that everyone should have a vote. This is how and why, say, the suffragettes make their case. It's how, how and why apartheid comes to fall. People recognize the value of saying, yes, everyone has a right to a vote, no matter their gender, no matter the color of their skin, whatever. These are not categories that apply to Athens. The Athenians are obviously a pre-Christian civilization, and so they have a very different understanding of what the ideologies are that underpin their form of government. And their form of government, their forms of ideology are absolutely rooted in the supernatural. And this is the second block for us because scholars in the 21st century, almost without exception, are massively materialist in their preconceptions. They don't believe that the gods, as understood by the Athenians, existed. And so therefore, it's very difficult to make that imaginative leap that would enable you to see the world as the Athenians did. But for what it's worth, I think that the word demos, which we tend to, trans well, we do translate as people, 
you know, it's the power of the people that underpins a democracy. That's not what demos really means in the Athenian world. To the Athenians, demos is the entirety of everyone who has and will in the future spring from the sacred soil of Attica. The Athenians are autochthonous. They're literally sprung from the sacred earth of the land that surrounds Athens. And this is what the demos is. And so those who temporarily have responsibility for the demos, you know, they stand in a line of succession from those who went before them, and they have a duty of care to those who will follow them. And men and women have different roles in this demos. The duty of men is to sustain the democracy against its political enemies, its enemies in the dimension of the earthly. So that is why they go out to fight. And that is why they legislate. That is why they draw up laws. That is why they have votes. That is their responsibility. The responsibility of women is to mediate between the earthly and the supernatural. It is women who lead the great procession that goes up to the Acropolis. It's women who weave the robe that is donated to Athena, the patron goddess of the city. It is women who tend to the sacred olive tree that grows on the Acropolis, who tend to the sacred spring there, who feeds the snake that supposedly originates from the very beginnings of Athens. It's women who are seen as being closer to the gods than men. And we, with our materialist lenses on, may say, well, this is all a sham. Uh, you know, of course, I mean, who cares about weaving a robe for Athena when you could have a vote? But I think that that is an anachronistic perspective. But I'm forced to ask, it's all fascinating, makes absolute sense, but perhaps it's a bit difficult to sum up on a podcast of this length, but what is a Christian society's relationship to the supernatural? Because the Father, Son of the Holy Ghost is certainly supernatural. Obviously, very profound. It's the most influential understanding of the supernatural that has ever existed. It has shaped the West convulsively, but it has also shaped global history too, because the paradox of Christianity is that it, 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 it has as its symbol an instrument of torture on which a colonial subject was tortured to death by the apparatus of an imperial power. Christianity itself has spread to every corner of the globe, often carried by colonialists. And so that paradox is very, very vivid. But obviously, the cross would have no significance whatsoever if it wasn't rooted in a profoundly supernatural understanding of its significance. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about your activism, if you can call it that. I would never call it that. No, I mean, you're, you're, you're not out on the street with a, a pitchfork or, or um, a Greenham Common or anything of that sort. But you are involved and have been involved in a number of campaigns. Some of them, I suppose you'd say broadly ecological, um, hedgehogs. Some of them about the preservation of our heritage in the case of Stonehenge. And uh, another, which I think is almost the most interesting, your work with the Better Together campaign around maintaining the United Kingdom as a structure. What is it about conserving that? And I ask this because somebody with your perspective that looks all the way back through, forget the dinosaurs for a minute, but the last two and a half thousand years, you'll have seen all sorts of different structures, the, the Athenian Demos, uh, the Roman Empire, the British Empire. 
And yet you were very passionate about ensuring that the United Kingdom, which seems like a slightly artificial construct, is maintained. Well, I, I said how I have this sense that the, the, I'm actually more interested in the past than the future. So a hostile listener may say, well, <laughs> there you go. Because all the things that you've mentioned, the, the Stonehenge landscape, uh, diversity in Britain, for which hedgehogs are the emblematic icon, uh, and the preservation of the union between England and Scotland, they're all, I suppose you could call them little c, conservative projects. I don't like to see things that I view as precious being willfully destroyed. And on the specificities of the union between England and Scotland, again, I guess it's rooted in a, a sense that I imbibed in childhood that um, the constituent parts of the island of Great Britain were less happy um, than when they were joined together in a shared enterprise. And that's true of the United Kingdoms of England and Scotland. Um, it took both of them a long time to cohere into the units that we now recognise. And I think it's true of uh, the joining together of Wales and England and Scotland into a single union, because I think that the identity that that I have, I would see myself as English, but I would also absolutely see myself as British. And I value that identity for elements that clearly derive from Scotland and Wales, as well as from England. So therefore, were the United Kingdom, and I mean, specifically the United Kingdom of Great Britain, to fragment, I would feel that, I think, as a very profound loss. How important is it to you as an historian to, I suppose, to let people know about how they're coming to their decisions? When I talk to a lot of historians, there's a lot of exasperation in uh, the general public thinking something without being apprised of the facts. And when I hear you sometimes, when you are trying to convince people about the efficacy of the union or you're trying to convince people about the importance of preserving things, there is a certain proselytizing zeal there as if, you know, if only people knew, if only people knew what this was about. Well, no, I think it's more quixotic than that, perhaps. I, I mean, I often feel that, I mean, for instance, the preservation of endangered species in this country, I think people entirely understand that our way of life is often incommensurate with the preservation of healthy degree of biodiversity in this country. But what can you do about it? I mean, I'm as guilty of that, of that as anyone. I have a car. You know, I have a certain standard of living. What sacrifices would I be prepared to make? And I feel, I do feel a kind of sense of despair about it. And not just about British biodiversity, about global biodiversity as well. I feel that we're, I've always been haunted by extinction, of course, because part of being interested in dinosaurs when you're a child is to realise that entire worlds can be destroyed, that entire orders of creature just vanish utterly. And to think that we're living through, you know, a, a, a sixth great extinction, a, a process of destruction comparable perhaps to you know the missile from outer space that targeted planet earth at the end of the cretaceous is very very depressing so i i mean if there's evangelical 
zeal. I'm not sure it's necessarily good that I feel that I'm a preacher of good news. <laughs> I, I mean, I've, I've, I think that there's a kind of strain of natural pessimism there, perhaps. But pessimism can be a source of uh, inspiration as well as optimism. Now, lastly, I want to talk to you about your relatively recent collaboration with Dominic Sandrick on The Rest is History, because just going through a, a roll call of what you've written, so many books, so much time spent in your own brain, starting even with fiction, with your vampire books, and then moving on to books which required a lot of scholarship, the translation of Herodotus when you didn't speak or, or read Greek, teaching yourself Greek and then setting yourself the quite absurd task of very successfully translating one of the most important books in ancient Greek literature. All of those feel like really very solitary endeavours. And now um, I've been to a Rest is History podcast recording and that sense of community, that sense of joy that everybody has being together, listening to you and Dominic, being included in it as well, is an extraordinarily collaborative exercise, one that's been made possible in the modern age by podcasting and by the creation of those communities. It's a very different way than sitting down and deciding to translate Herodotus, isn't it? It is. So both Dominic and I, uh, we've done radio, which I suppose is the closest analogy to a podcast, and we've done TV. And of course, we'd both of us written books a lot. Uh, and... It was through writing books that we met originally because we shared a publisher and we were often on the kind of same circuit. We got on very well. We had a very compatible range of interests and sense of humor and so on. And so I guess that uh, if I was going to collaborate with any historian, it was always going to be him because our interests and our, as I say, our sense of humor were, were so compatible for it. But it still seemed... I mean, a kind of very arrogant project, really. And it was put, you know, we, I, I began doing the podcast off the back of my brother's podcast, um, We Have Ways of Making You Talk, which, as you, you, you intimated earlier, is solely about the Second World War. And so when I began talking to the producers who did my brother's podcast, there was discussion about whether, you know, should the podcast that I do be focused on, you know, a similarly quite finite period the romans maybe say for the sake of argument but we agreed that it would be fun to go for the whole of history and because dominic specializes in modern history then you know he, he was the obvious person to do it now i think that both of us have found it completely liberating and perhaps for two particular reasons and the first is that it's it's liberating to to share in a project we've been doing it for over three years now and so you know, he kind of haunts my dreams. <laughs> uh, and I'm, maybe that's not entirely a complimentary thing to say. But I mean, we, you know, we have a kind of professional closeness in a way that neither of us had ever had before, because, uh, you know, as you say, writing is a very solitary business. But I think the other way in which it's been liberating is that because both of us had done radio and TV, you're very, very conscious of the straight jacket that you have to operate within. You know, you have layers of, of production all kinds of hoops that you have to jump through. You could be mid-project and suddenly find that the hoops have completely changed because, you know, the somebody higher up the food chain has, you know, switched jobs or something. And it's very, very frustrating. Whereas doing a, a podcast, uh, one of us could, you know, can have an idea and and we do it. And we can do it any way we like. And there's nobody to patrol us. There's nobody to say we can't do what we exactly what we want to do. So to find that uh it's one us 
an audience much larger than the audiences we had for, say, radio is tremendous and, you know, kind of wonderful and absolutely invigorating. It's a bit of a mundane question, but I'm genuinely interested. How do you decide what you're going to discuss? Because with your brother's podcast with Al Murray, there's a benefit, I guess, to the narrowness of the subject matter. Yeah. How on earth do you decide? I mean, you, you've done a wonderful series on the assassination of John F. Kennedy, for example, as well as a wonderful episode before the King's coronation on crazy royal coronations. So both of those are obvious. I mean, we do the episode on coronations because the king was being crowned. That's why we did it then. Yeah. And the, uh, equally, we did the series on JFK because it's the anniversary of his assassination. We did it for 22nd of November 2023. But my point being that given that you can, you're willing to have that kind of sweep, how, when there isn't an obvious topic, how do you decide? Okay, but just for instance, to stick to the coronation and to JFK, I'm interested in coronations. I've written about them. They are part of the sacral inheritance of Christianity. I have this kind of bedrock of knowledge there that I can draw on. Likewise, Dominic's academic specialization back when he was teaching at university was modern American history. So he knows everything about JFK. <laughs> it's very easy. Now, of course, there are lots of subjects that we have opined about that we know you know, we, we we have to research pretty much from base. So I would say that there are two kind of framing contexts for what we would choose to do. The first is a kind of broad sense that we want to cover as broad a range as we possibly can. So that means a chronological range. Um, if we do something ancient one week, you know, we might want to do something modern in the next or something medieval or early modern or whatever. We want to have that range. We also want to have a certain degree of geographical range. We're both British. So our focus has always been British, I would say about a third British, but we're European, so also European, about a third European, but we're also global citizens, so a third global. So I would say that's roughly the balance. We don't want to do too much British history. We don't want to do too much European history. You know, we want to have a, as broad a range as we possibly can. And then there's there's questions about tone and kind of focus of study. So, you know, if we're covering a war one week, we might want to study the history of fashion the next, something like that. If we're doing something that is quite light, quite frothy, perhaps we'll do something a bit more kind of serious the following week. So that's important. But then the other thing is that determines how we decide our inspiration, if you like, is basically how much time do we have. If we're embroiled in writing a book, Christmas is coming, uh, people are going on holiday, whatever, we just don't have time to do that eight-part series on the French Revolution, to do the necessary reading and research, then we might do something that's much easier and, and more accessible. So, so that basically is the determinant. And I'll give you an example of that. This year, both of us, for the first time, will not be writing a book. First time in, in decades and decades. So we're just going to be focusing on the podcast. So we will hopefully have the time to do that eight-part series on the French Revolution. But we couldn't you know, there was been no prospect of us being able to do that unless we had given ourselves that leeway. But I remember maybe a, a year and a half ago when I was absolutely in the toils of finishing my most recent book, Pax, about the, the heyday of the Roman Empire, which I was doing all day and then having to do the necessary reading for the podcast in the evening. And we were very aware that we hadn't done anything on the Tudors. We hadn't done anything really on the English Reformation. But, you know, to do something on the English Reformation 
it's a huge, huge topic. It's like the French Revolution. I mean, it's too many books to read. So what we did, we did uh, a couple of episodes on Lady Jane Grey. And the whole point of Lady Jane Grey is that she's known as the nine day queen. So nine days, actually, it's a few more, but you know, it's a short period. <laughs> it's, it's a very, very researchable topic. But of course, it's a useful topic because it does touch on all kinds of aspects of the English Reformation. Jane is promoted as queen because she's Protestant and because the rightful heir to the throne, Mary, is Catholic. So you have all kinds of Reformation-related interest there. So (laughs) that's what helps to determine with the episodes that we do. Lastly, everything that you do is suffused with a joyful enthusiasm, which draws an audience in. Not all academic study is necessarily punctuated with joyful enthusiasm. How do you manage to maintain that joy? Because talking to you is like talking to the excitable child who first discovered dinosaurs. When you're talking about pretty much anything, where do you get that seemingly limitless enthusiasm for almost any topic from? Well, there are lots of things I'm not interested in. (laughs) I mean, I don't want you to imply that I'm interested in everything. There are lots of things I'm not interested in. The Second World War. (laughs) No, I'm interested in the Second World War. Just to stick, say, to the field of of history, I find it infinitely fascinating because it teaches us how infinite the number of ways to be human are. How could that not be interesting? I think that's probably true of most things, that if you look at them on the assumption that it's going to be more interesting than you think, almost invariably it will be. So just one final example. During the lockdown, Initially, we thought that you were only allowed to have an hour of exercise. So you could walk from your front door for an hour and then come back and you had to be out only for an hour. And then we discovered this wasn't true at all, that you could walk as far as you wanted, uh, as long as you, you left your front your house and you came back to your house. So we began doing these insane walks all over London, walking you know, 10, 20, 30, on one occasion, 40 miles. And it meant that we had a reason to explore London in a way that we hadn't previously had. And so the chance to explore every last, well, not every, because London's so infinite, but nooks and crannies of London that we simply wouldn't have looked at before. It was all so interesting. There was no area of London that wasn't interesting. We could go to the dullest, most suburban stretch of London and you do the work on it and you discover that there'd been some palace there or there'd been some zoo there or you know some mad person had done something mad there it was great really great and in a way i i mean it's the one thing about the lockdown i miss and i hated the lockdown but the chance to immerse yourself in touring a particular region of a city was kind of amazing um basically everything like that is interesting Well, I think that's a fantastic mantra for life. Long may you continue exploring and congratulations on getting through an entire, however long this podcast now is, without once mentioning cricket. That is truly, I mean, I think a unique, (laughs) a unique experience in your life. But Dan, you've just ruined it. Well, I have, but we could always edit it out. (laughs) We kept our wicket for the whole day's play and now you've just had a world swipe and the wicket's gone. Terrible. Tom Holland, you've been a joy. 
You've been listening to the latest episode of the Rathbones Inspired Minds podcast series with me, Daniel Norcross, and the marvellous Tom Holland. You can listen to previous episodes of the series on all major podcast platforms. And if you enjoyed listening, don't forget to like or subscribe. To find out more about the series, just go to rathbones.com. The Rathbones Inspired Minds podcast series, now available on all podcast platforms and at rathbones.com. The Rathbones Inspired Minds podcast series is brought to you by Rathbones, a leading provider of individual wealth management and asset management services to private clients, charities, trustees and professional partners. Please note, the value of your investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and you could get back less than you invested.